Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, while you're uh, turning there, I'll just uh, say a, a few words. We have, of course, been going through uh, the book of First Peter, and we have uh, come in recent weeks to the last part of First Peter that is addressing elders. And of course, this is something that we have uh, we've talked a lot about uh, here at Burton. Something that we uh, desire to have, and so I thought it was fitting that we would spend some additional time looking at the subject of of elders, and uh, this week in particular looking at qualifications of elders. So there's overlap with 1 Peter 5, but I I really want to just focus really for this week and next week on 1 Timothy 3. So um, we're going to read this morning together from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and just verses 1 to 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And and before we do, let me just give you one more heads up as well. Uh, When we gather together on on Sunday mornings to hear the word proclaimed, part of the responsibility of elders is to preach and teach the word of God. We're going to be leaning heavily on the teaching side of that uh, this morning. So just a heads up, we're going to sort of get into the weeds this morning. See if you have a pen and paper. Get ready to take some notes. Uh, But uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, like I said, beginning in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we have just sung a moment ago, we desire that You would speak to us through Your Word, and we desire that we would be a people who not merely hear it and think pleasant thoughts about it and then move on, but that we would be a people who conform our lives to it, that full obedience would be the response. And we desire that this is the case not only individual lives, but Lord, Your Word teaches how Your church is to be ordered. It teaches us what the responsibility of members is and what the responsibilities of pastors is and 
we desire to conform ourselves to it. And if that means making changes from customs and traditions, if that means doing things that seem foreign, we want to know and understand your word and then place ourselves in submission to it so that even here through this local flock of God, the gospel would not only be proclaimed, but that it may also be seen. And so, Father, again, we pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. Help us to know and to begin to know what the qualifications of elders is to be. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said a moment ago, since we are in this section in 1 Peter 5 where elders are being addressed, and since as a church we want to conform ourselves to the Bible and eventually install a plurality of elders here, I thought it would be a good opportunity to spend some additional time in looking more in depth at the subject of elders. We had a broad introduction to elders a while back, and then last week we looked at some of the duty uh, duties of elders, and then this week and next week we will spend some time looking at what Bible teaches about the biblical qualifications for elders. And then the following week, uh, we will look at the relationship between elders, pastors, and the congregation. And then in that week that follows that one, we will conclude First uh, Peter. Now, I mentioned last week that in First Peter 5... Peter describes the manner in which elders are to carry out the shepherding or pastoring task among the people of God. They are to, he says, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have them, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples to the flock. And what I pointed out last week is that these characteristics are in many ways parallel to the qualifications of character that all elders have to meet, which Paul lists in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1. And so a very you know, obvious one, as Peter says, that shepherds are to do this willingly. And, and of course, Paul says that any man who desires the office of overseer desires a noble task. But there's overlap in what they are speaking about. And so I want to begin to look at some of those qualifications in more detail today. And, and as we do, allow me to just make a few general observations about what we find here in this text before getting into some of the details. First, 
it's worth pointing out that these qualifications that we find here in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus are not exhaustive. This is not an exhaustive list of qualifications. There is, of course, a lot of overlap between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, but there are also notable differences. So for example, Titus chapter 1 says nothing about an elder not being a recent convert. Nor does it say anything about an elder having a good reputation among outsiders. 1 Timothy says that a man must be respectable and yet that same word is not found in Titus chapter 1. And the point is not that these particular qualities are unimportant or that they're, they're not necessary. It's just that like virtually every single list that you find within the Bible and the New Testament in particular, they're never exhausted. You can just think about some of the lists that we find in Romans chapter 1. Paul gives a whole list of the kinds of sins that are the result of the idolatrous human heart. Well, he doesn't list every single sin that has ever existed. And Paul elsewhere lists the, some of the, the works of the flesh right? in, in comparison to the work of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. That's not an exhaustive list either. The reason why they're not exhaustive lists there, it's not an exhaustive list here, relates to the second observation that I want to make, which is that virtually all of these qualifications here, with the lone exception of the ability to teach, which, which relates to the work of an elder, all of them have to do with a man's character being above reproach. So both 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 begins by stating that an elder must be above reproach. Meaning that his character should be such that it is not open to valid, justifiable criticism. You should not be able to make a moral accusation against an elder and its stick. And people can make accusations all the time. That's unavoidable. But it should not be able to stick. And that's what being above reproach in essence means. Now this is not to say, of course, that elders are without sin. That's Obvious, but it is to say that the general pattern of life as a result of their regular walk with Christ is one that is holy and one that is worthy of imitation. This is the overarching qualification that Paul begins with here. A man must be above reproach. And everything that follows are particular examples of what it looks like to be above reproach both in one's personal life 
and in their relationships and even in their work as an elder. And because the general qualification is above reproach, there may be some particulars that you could add to this list or restate or even just omit altogether, not feel it necessary to list as Paul does, not because they're unnecessary, but because they're just a given as part of having a character that is above reproach. So again, Paul doesn't mention that an elder must be respectable in Titus chapter 1. But that's a given, because that's part of being above reproach. If a man is known by his co-workers as being rude, as being mean and sour, and it's legitimately because of how he conducts himself at work, even though Paul doesn't mention that one in Titus, it is crystal clear that his character is not above reproach. And so, from the office of elder, is disqualified. So that's, a, that's a, just another observation that's worth noting here. This list isn't exhaustive. But lastly, I want to point out that without question, without question, the most controversial and debated particular qualification that follows being above reproach is the very first one. That an elder must be the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. This is not only something that has been debated recently, but even throughout the history of the church. The meaning of this particular phrase and qualification is, bar none, the most contested. If you look in commentaries, if you read monographs on this passage, or you listen to debates or lectures, Everyone is pretty much in universal agreement as to the meaning of all the others. But with this first qualification, much ink has been spilled. Much repetition of ink has been spilled. And so because of this, we will spend most all of our time this morning working through the meaning of this one in particular. So, Paul begins here, again, by saying that an overseer must be above reproach. That is the general standard. And then he begins listing particular examples of this. And he says that an overseer must be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. Now, depending on how you categorize them, there are at least four interpretations of this phrase, one woman man. And like with anything, they are not and they cannot all be right. Many people today, I know, are very fond, especially in our postmodern climate, of asserting that the presence of 
multiple interpretations of any given text either allows the reader to arbitrarily pick whichever one he likes best or that arriving at a correct interpretation is impossible or too difficult or related to this that the truth of the matter is simply unknowable. I mean, I know I've had plenty of conversations with people about the gospel and about the Bible. We've even had some recent ones with some Mormons. And as, as soon as there's some uh, debate about the particular meaning of a word or a phrase, it's just jettisoned as being unknowable. But as Christians, we are interested in the truth. And we believe that God gave us brains and that He speaks to us through a living book in such a way that we can understand. And so what we have to do when we hear various interpretations of a given passage is to evaluate the claims, to evaluate the interpretations, to discern what best explains the meaning and use of a given word or phrases in a text, what best agrees with the flow of the argument in the surrounding context, and what best agrees with what the rest of Scripture says on a particular issue. I've heard it plenty of times before. There are all kinds of scholars who make sophisticated arguments that Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing to do with unnatural sexual relationships. It's all about hospitality. They were not being hospitable to the men that came into the city, to the angels. And they can make arguments from the use of words and phrases, and all it takes is a simple evaluation of those claims, and you find that they rest on nothing more than sand. Claims can be made. They have to be, of course, evaluated. And that's what we need to do in this case to arrive at the truth of the matter. Evaluate the arguments for each interpretation and the claims of each. Now, the first interpretation of this phrase that we find, one woman man, is a very ancient and one that at least for a period of time around the 4th century and possibly even earlier than that was the dominant view. The claim is that this phrase means that a potential elder can only have been married once in his entire life. That's what it means to be a one-woman man. The potential elder could only have been married one time in his entire life, which even more specifically means that if a man's wife has died and he then remarried, he is not allowed to serve as an elder. That's what Paul means here when he says this phrase here, one woman, man. This interpretation, however, is guilty of committing the same kinds of errors as some of the other views we'll see in a moment. So for one thing, it does not account 
for the meaning of a very similar phrase that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, that has to do with the character of a true widow who can be enrolled to receive some kind of monetary support from the church. So in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is talking about how to care for widows in the church who he says are true widows. They have no one else to care for them. They have no family to care for them. They are totally destitute. And he gives a description. He he gives qualifications for who then can be enrolled to receive that kind of monetary assistance from the church. He says that they should not be any younger than 60 years old. If they're younger than that, they need to get remarried so that their husbands can care and provide for them. He says that true widows should have a reputation for good works, for hospitality, for caring for the saints and more. And in this context, he also says that they must have been one-man women. Or as the ESV puts it, the wife of one husband. This is the same exact phrase as 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, only in the reverse. Speaking of women. Now, it would be quite strange if this phrase meant that a true widow who receives care from the church can only be a woman who has been married once and never remarried again. And it would be strange and an unjust penalty if a young woman lost her husband, remarried in obedience to the Word of God, lost her second husband, and is now disqualified from being a true widow because she obeyed Paul's command, remarried at a young age, and then suffered the unfortunate circumstance of losing her second husband at a later point in life. Her disqualification would be due not to a flaw in her character, but to providence. Or, as Theodore of Matuesta put it, when he was arguing against the traditions of the church in the 4th century in his day, and arguing that we need to go back to the text to look at this, and not just go about with the customs that have been going on, when, when he responded to this very claim, he said likewise that her disqualification would be due merely to luck and not character. And I think that this critique is right. And if it is wrong to interpret the phrase wife of one husband or one man woman to mean that the widow could only have been married once in her entire life, it is equally wrong that this is what the phrase means for a potential elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, especially 
if the man remarried after his first wife died because Scripture itself allowed him to do so, commended remarriage to him, told him that he was free to do that very thing. Now, there are other problems with this interpretation, but they are essentially the same kinds of problems as some of the other interpretations that I think are are flawed. And so we're going to consider the others, and then you can really just apply those same critiques to this one as well. Now, a second interpretation is that the phrase, husband of one wife, means that a man cannot be a polygamist. That's what Paul's getting at here. And there's some merit to this, because polygamy was something that was still practiced among some people at the time. But I've become convinced, and even more so recently, that while this is certainly a prohibition that is implied by this phrase, that is uh, captured by this phrase, the problem is that it is too specific for it to capture the full meaning of the phrase. And one of the things that clinches this for me is, again, the similar phrase found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. If Paul here, in 1 Timothy 3, is specifically prohibiting polygamy, then the widows that he's referring to in 1 Timothy 5 are there being prohibited from what's called polyandry. That is, where a a woman has multiple husbands at the same time. That's what Paul would be prohibiting there. But polyandry was not even a thing in the first century. Like, there's no record of anyone actually practicing that. And I don't know of anybody who actually even practices that today. So the question, of course, would be, why would Paul be prohibiting something that did not even exist? And Of course, he wouldn't. So the phrase, husband of one wife, can't exclusively be a prohibition against polygamy, although, as we'll see, it has implications for that, that very fact. You are not a one-woman man if you are a polygamist. Now, this leads us to a third interpretation, and this one, as well as the final one that we're going to consider, are by far the most predominant today. This is really where the crux of the debates lie, and so we're going to consider these in more detail. The third interpretation argues that the phrase husband of one wife or one woman man refers primarily to a requirement that an elder be married. So he, he must hold this particular status, which is that of a presently married man. Obviously to one woman. Obviously not a polygamist. Hence the phrase husband of one wife. The point, he must be a husband. If he's a widower, 
he has to be disqualified because he is clearly no longer married. And of course, if he is single and has been single his whole life and remains single, he does not likewise meet the biblical qualifications. Now again, I think this interpretation shares some of the same problems as the first, as as well as some others that I'll I'll point out. And, And for one thing, it suffers from a wooden literalism. If we are to read this phrase as referring to a present marital status, then we must also be consistent and read the qualification of verse 4 as referring to a present family status. So Paul says there, if you look with me in verse 4, that an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Which, with this kind of literalism, would mean that the elder must not only be married, but he must be married with multiple children because he has to keep his children, plural, submissive. So, a man who is married and whose wife is barren is not qualified. A man who is married with only one child does not meet the qualifications. A man who is married and whose children perhaps tragically have died is not qualified. A man who is married, whose children have grown up and are no longer under his household to keep them submissive is not qualified. And the list of circumstances could, could go on. The problem here, among others, is that like the first interpretation, a man is unqualified because of luck. And not because of character. Because of his providential circumstances. And this would have nothing to do with being above reproach, which leads to the second and related issue. As I mentioned earlier, in the context of the passage, as well as in the parallel passage in Titus 1, Paul begins by saying that an overseer must be above reproach. That is the the overarching characteristic, the overarching qualification. And grammatically, and structurally, semantically, the meaning of the word above reproach is virtually always used to describe a general characteristic that specific qualities are examples of. The very word irreproachable, or to to be above reproach, is used in many contexts, again, virtually always, as a general term that has specific examples. And so, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, to give you a a concrete example of this, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 7, a widow who sets her hope on God, and a family who takes care of their widowed mother, are examples of having irreproachable character. Specific examples of this general character. 
And in the same way, in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications that Paul lists are specific examples of Christian character and maturity that is irreproachable. Now, if that's the case, I don't see what a man whose wife is barren or a godly man who's a widower or a single man has to do with being above reproach, of being some sort of blemish on his character. These are qualifications that have to do with the quality of a man's life and not the various circumstances they may be in through providence. Now third, like the previous two interpretations, this one, I don't think, makes good sense of the meaning of the phrase wife of one husband in 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, about widows. If the phrase here, a husband of one wife, means primarily a requirement that a man be married to one woman, then 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, must also mean a woman who was married to one man. But if that's the case, the phrase is virtually meaningless because it's nothing more than a tautology, which means, in essence, you are saying the same thing twice with no substantive meaning. There's no difference. It's an example of a a word salad that doesn't make sense. So, So let me just illustrate this by giving you an example. Some of you, perhaps not all of you, but I'm sure some of you have seen Marvel's Avengers Infinity War. Okay? Some of you, probably not. There is a scene in that movie where one of the characters, Thor, is about to take the full power of a star in his body. Like it's about to just shine right through him. Okay? It's, and it could possibly kill him if he does that. And there's another character that's present with him when he's about to do this named Eitri. And Eitri warns him against taking on the power of this star. And he says, if you do this, it'll kill you. And then Thor comedically replies, only if I die. To which Eitri then says, yes, that's what killing you means, right? That's an example of a a tautology. Like, you just said the same thing twice with no substantive difference. And a widow, by definition, is a woman who was married. So if Paul says that the widow must have had the status of a married woman, then like Eitri... We might reply to Paul, yes, Paul, that's what being a widow means. What does the phrase mean? In other words, there's something else that's being communicated by this phrase. There's an obvious assumption 
that the woman was married. That's just a given by virtue of being a widow. But there was something about her character that no doubt was seen in her marriage, but as we'll see, is not exclusive to marriage. There was something about her character that was commendable and that Paul is communicating by the phrase, one husband wife, or one man woman. Lastly, as it has been pointed out by many others, it is hard to imagine Paul, who is of course a single man establishing qualifications for eldership, but neither he, nor Jesus, nor Timothy, his fellow worker, who according to all the biblical and historical evidence we have, none of them were married. It's hard to imagine Paul establishing elder qualifications that none of them could actually meet. And on this point, I just want to say two things. One is that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, commends the life of singleness that he has. He no doubt commends marriage in that chapter as well, but he does say that singleness is a gift from the Lord that allows someone to be uniquely and singularly devoted to the Lord, unlike a married person who has to also consider how to please their spouse. I'll I'll put it to you this way. If one day I just had this overwhelming burden that the gospel needs to go into the furthest regions of Siberia, and I want to go and I want to preach the gospel there, and I'm a single man, well, pack your bags and go. But if I was to approach Leah, and I was to say, Leah, the gospel needs to get to Siberia, which she would say, yeah, absolutely it does. And then I was to say, and I'm going to go. She would say, well, then go. Pack your bags. And you won't have a wife and kids anymore. <laughs> I have to consider right, my family. I have to consider the desires of my wife, the needs of my kids. That all goes into consideration when making decisions about ministry, about how to serve and please the Lord. There are certain freedoms that unmarried people have that if used properly, and they can be used improperly, but if used properly, can allow them to serve the Lord and minister the gospel in even more ways than those who are married. And it's difficult to square Paul commending that freedom with a requirement that only the married can pastor a church. It seems to undermine the missionary intention that's behind that commending work that would lead a single man to pack his things and to then go into an unreached people group to plant and pastor churches. Additionally, it's strange to think Paul would require elders 
It's difficult to think that they are to meet qualifications that, again, neither Jesus, Paul, nor Timothy could meet. And I want to just think about Timothy specifically for a moment. Just think about some of the things that Timothy is instructed to do by Paul in this letter and in other places. This letter that, among others, but but particularly teaches pastors what their work is to be about. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy is responsible for commanding and rebuking false teachers in the church. He's to confront those false teachers. He's entrusted with both implementing Paul's doctrinal instructions to the church, which includes how it is to be ordered and who can serve in what capacities, And he is called to serve as an example to be followed. Not just to the church in general, but to the elders. Which is one of the qualifications that Peter mentions in 1 Peter 5. That a pastor is to serve as an example to the flock. In his implementation of all of these doctrinal instructions, he is responsible for teaching the church what kind of men can serve as elders and leaders in the church, which is strange to think about if he himself could not serve in those capacities. He teaches authoritatively in the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11. And this would have been something he was doing for years on end preach and to teach the Word of God to the church at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, he is commanded to read Scripture publicly and to preach and teach. And again, he is commanded to devote himself to this work. This isn't just the occasional public reading. This is is his call to do week in and week out, day by day. He oversees the church, carrying out church discipline particularly if it involves a church elder. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 to 20. If an elder is legitimately accused of wrongdoing, Timothy is commanded to rebuke that elder in the presence of all so that the rest may fear. So he's even speaking to elders authoritatively. Now, every single one of these responsibilities are responsibilities that elders of every local church are required to carry out. And Timothy would have been carrying out these responsibilities again at times for years on end. And so it's strange to think that Timothy, who oversaw the church at Ephesus, was not actually qualified to be an overseer. Now this leads us lastly to the fourth interpretation and what I believe the phrase actually means. Which is that the potential elder, being a one-woman man with a husband of one wife, as the ESV puts, 
This elder is to be a man who has demonstrated faithfulness in the sexual realm. And obviously, if he's married, he has kept the marriage bed pure. It is primarily a phrase that is describing sexual fidelity. It, by definition, excludes practices like polygamy. But it also, by definition, excludes men who are fornicating apart from marriage and any and every other deviation from God's design for sex. It is a phrase that is framed using marital terminology to speak of monogamy and faithfulness to God's created order in the sexual realm, but it is not a phrase that can only and exclusively be fulfilled by a married man. So let me just give you an example of something similar to illustrate what I'm talking about here. The seventh commandment. If you think about the seventh commandment for a moment. The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. It does not say, you shall not whore yourselves, which is the Hebrew term that would be the broadest possible term to describe all kinds of sexual immorality. It specifically says, you shall not commit adultery. Now that is a command that if we're only looking at the dictionary definition of the word and not also to how it is used and expounded upon in Scripture, that is a word and a command that only prohibits a man or a woman who is married from breaking their marriage vows. With that kind of literal reading... Other forms of sexual immorality, like sex outside of marriage, are not actually being prohibited by the seventh commandment, even though in other places they may be. But the seventh commandment has nothing to do with that. And yet we know that Jesus himself did not read that command or understand the meaning of that word in that way. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28, Jesus says there, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I want you to notice, Jesus is not just talking about Married men here. Everyone, he says. Married or otherwise. And he says that even if an unmarried man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the point is that clearly for Jesus, adultery though it is a word that can have a very specific meaning 
within the context of a married couple, though it is a word that is framed by the marital realm, it is not confined to the marital realm alone. Unmarried, lustful fornicators can be violators of the seventh commandment and adulterers. You can be a woman and you can be guilty of the sexual sin of lust even though Jesus is specifically speaking about men lustfully looking at women. And the point is that the command, you shall not commit adultery, is a command that uses this marital language to give a broad prohibition. And that's what's going on in 1 Timothy 3. Paul is not requiring a certain marital status that may or may not be in the hands of a potential elder. He is calling for an elder to display a certain character of life. He is to be above reproach. And one clear way to see if he's above reproach is if he's a one-woman man. And obviously, to use the actual language of Paul, that Paul uses, he has language to describe somebody who is married or who needs to get married. To use the actual language of Paul when describing married people, if a man has his own wife, then seeing his sexual fidelity to her is going to be an obvious demonstration that he's a one-woman man. But to the unmarried, widowed or otherwise, who do not have their own wives, and again, to use 1 Corinthians 7, who are not specifically married. Being a one-woman man can still be seen in how you treat other women that you're not married to. Do you treat them as Timothy was instructed to as your mothers and your sisters? Older women, you, you treat as your mothers. Younger women, you treat as your sisters. Or do you treat them as meat? Are you rude and provocative towards them? As an unmarried person, are you keeping yourself pure? And are you upholding God's design for sex that a man shall only have his wife and no other? This is how Timothy himself and Paul and Jesus could all likewise be considered one-woman men, even though they were never married. Because they were upholding the ethics and morals and qualities that this phrase was fundamentally communicating. They are upholding God's design. And if there's no intention to get married at all, then you refrain from sexual relations and you uphold that design and you still remain a one-woman man. I think this meaning best accounts for how the phrase one-woman man and the similar one 
in 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, is used here and in other contexts. I think it best accounts as well for why Paul uses different language to describe people who are actually married in 1 Corinthians 7. And just as a closing remark, it remains a qualification that cuts right against all of the sexual chaos that is present in our culture, and it is a correction and a rebuke to much of the preventable scandals that have plagued the Southern Baptist Convention in particular. If people, churches, paid more attention to the biblical qualifications for pastors and less attention to charisma and less attention to attractive personality, pay more attention to the character of men, we would not have a plague of immorality on our hands. And this one, this qualification coming first, dealing with the sexual realm, I don't think is a coincidence. That is one of the most destructive sins that can be committed because it affects all kinds of people very quickly. Pastors are to be exemplars both in their own lives and in their teachings of how God has designed and ordered the world. They are to uphold this in every aspect of their lives. And so it's imperative that in their relationships, especially with the opposite sex, they are pure and blameless and above reproach. They are one woman men and are therefore men who glorify God with their bodies. Churches, we are thinking about these qualifications and are eagerly praying that the Lord would raise up for us qualified men. That is a prayer for the purity of our church and the purity of the men in our congregation. So let's go to the Lord and let's ask His blessings on His Word and ask that He would bless us in this very way. Father, it is no doubt the case that in our day, just as in Paul's day, we we are living in a Romans 1 world where because of idolatry there is much confusion and much confusion especially in the realm of husbands and wives and sexual relations. We as your people, as your church, are to be a shining light beaming forth the plans, the design that you established in the very beginning to bear witness to the gospel even through our lives and our relationships. And pastors are to model this this very reality in their own lives.
5. And so we pray, Lord, that as we desire to be a people who submit ourselves in full obedience to your word, we pray that you would purify us, that you would in particular purify our men, and that you would raise up holy, godly, above reproach men who will gladly and joyfully shepherd your flock all the way home. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.